please do not associate us with common terrorists. We are warriors of peace fighting a noble battle for the law of nature. Yeah, yeah. We saw how peaceful you are. Howdy, cowboys. How y'all doing? Welcome to ABC Wulong Club, an episode-by-episode digest of Cowboy Bebop. My name is Steve Cuff. And I'm Colin Tanner, and every week at OptimismVaccine.com, we're celebrating the 20th anniversary of Cowboy Bebop. We're giving you behind-the-scenes info, fan theories, creator history, Bebop influences, and so much more. And Steve, we've finally done it. It is the fourth episode, which means we have finally reached the end of the Bondi Toys era. We can see the Bondi visual era in the distance, where they're going to allow more violence and more risky content and more melancholy. We are trapped in this action-adventure storyline right now, but soon, so soon, we're going to escape. Well, the only thing I care about is whether or not we get more spaceship toys. That's all that matters to me. Can you sell me a spaceship? Now, I'm really excited to talk about the episode this week because one of the things I wanted to do when we were, you know, started Wulong Club was the idea of revisiting episodes that I had mixed feelings on. And I I can say this episode, above all else, during my first viewing and my second viewing, this one always stood out to me as just being a little uh, lopsided. The closest thing I can compare it to is those old songs from the 1950s, like Runaway, where it didn't really have like a verse and a chorus. It just felt like three choruses that were just thrown together and they didn't quite have like a, a consistent tone. This is what that episode is to me. And, I, you know, rewatching it, I learned I didn't like as many things as I used to. And I learned to really appreciate other aspects that I didn't like back then. I just don't know how you can't love this episode because it has space, PETA. That's true. Well, Steve, what would you say so far? Uh, the Bondi Toys era of Bebop. How has this felt to you? It's been a little inconsistent just because I'd say so far episodes one through four have all had a very different feeling to them. Like uh, there hasn't been a lot of synergy or harmony in these episodes as much as I've enjoyed them. So it'll be interesting to see how the show sort of comes together post Bandai Toys. Well, before we get into that, we have to start off, as we always do, with a little bit of Bebop history. And today, we're going to be talking about the localization team, specifically Mark Handler. So far, we've only talked about the Japanese creators of Cowboy Bebop. This time, I wanted to focus on Mark Handler, who was the English script supervisor. Basically, he would sit down and uh, he would translate the episode, or he would receive like translated scripts, and he would cut it together so that it would fit for ADR. But back when Mark Handler was growing up, he didn't think too much about translations. In fact, the only thing he actually cared about was playing or watching baseball while building his prized card collection, which apparently he still has to this day. As Handler got older, he became interested in global politics and writing sketches, and helped found a small political theater group to put on performances addressing issues of the time, such as women's rights and the imprisonment of Nelson Mandela. Is that not the most 80s political movement that you can think of? Uh, Pretty much, yeah. I'm surprised he didn't do like a We Are the World or Hands Across America sketch. (laughs) Attending the University of Southern California, he earned two master's degrees. The first was for stage direction, so live performances, and the second, which will be far more relevant to this podcast, writing for film and television, which landed him a huge job at the newly formed Disney Channel, which in terms of 1980s cable was hugely ambitious. They were doing tons of original programming, which Mark worked on. Yeah, it was a page. I I know the, the Disney Channel was one of the earlier cable channels. Uh, it was a paid channel, and it was sort of in the same tier for a long time as like HBO or something like that, uh, whereas now it's it's usually part of basic cable. But it doesn't sound like that lasted too long, because by the mid-1980s, his friend Heidi Lester brought him on to do something called ADR for a show called Voltron. Never heard of it. Get this, all right? This is so weird. He wasn't writing original scripts. He was taking Japanese cartoons and writing dialogue for the English actors. <laughs> Pretty weird stuff at the time. Don't forget, Marshall, that the space explorers are thoroughly trained in survival and self-defense. This isn't the first time they've been in a tight spot. As usual, Zarkon's reptilian ambassadors refuse to cooperate, denying any knowledge of an attack against the people of Eris. Long ago, there was a legend on planet Eris about a castle of lions that held the secret of the super robot Voltron. Voltron could save them. Now, by all accounts, Mark had a pretty difficult job. Uh, one episode of Voltron turned out to start at the third act of one episode and ended at the second act of another. They didn't notice it when they brought it over. And when Mark pointed this out to his supervisor, they just said, do what you can. Well, and this is part of the process of, of doing any sort of ADR translation work. 
and you could see this in cartoons and video games and live action shows and all kinds of things, you're not just translating words verbatim. It is like literally an art form because there's so many things, whether it's the pacing of the show, like in this Voltron example, or if it's themes or jokes or cultural references, things that would not make sense to your average American audience that you have to somehow reconfigure so that American kids can understand it and and be engaged by it. I think even to like a child's ears, that show was so much cooler and it wasn't just the concept. It felt like the characters had real personality. That's something that just didn't exist back then. I mean, what can you really say about He-Man? And despite these awkward work circumstances and writing an episode or two for American cartoons like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and Denver the Last Dinosaur. I love Denver the Last Dinosaur. Really? What was that? Uh, It's about a dinosaur who is resurrected by a a group of precocious teens, and he joins a rock band with them. What does he play? Uh, I think he plays Keytar, and it's got this great theme song. Denver, the last dinosaur, he's our friend, and a whole lot more timely hand claps. That's part of it. Well, Mark Handler worked on it, so I guess that's something that ties back into Bebop. But thankfully, Mark stuck with the ADR, writing the English scripts for Tenchi Muyo, Tenchi Universe, and Tenchi in Tokyo, as well as all three movies, which is an anime series near and dear to my heart that Steve will likely hate. Probably. There's a lot of anime girls living under one house, and they all have the hots for Tenchi. Mm. You can tell Mark has seen a lot of bad ADR in his time because in interviews he always mentions how poor scripts make scenes feel pointless or unrelated or just plain boring. But finally he was given the opportunity of a lifetime when Kevin Seymour offered him the chance to write the ADR for Cowboy Bebop. And Mark said no. Wait, what? I wasn't expecting that to go there. Well, neither was Kevin because he really had his mindset on Mark because he was so talented. So he asked Mark again, and Mark finally said no. See, he was leaving the States altogether and going to travel around Asia. But Kevin offered him a highly unconventional deal. See, he could use this thing called email, the computer mail that was getting big, even in Asia, to send scripts no matter where he was. Well, it was pretty weird, but Mark agreed. And so he was able to go on an extended vacation while mailing the Bebop scripts back to America. Now, obviously everything worked out because since then he's contributed to some of the best scripts in the anime industry, including Fooly Cooly, Naruto, and Ghost in the Shell. But that's all after Bebop, so we're not going to talk about it. So if it wasn't for the increased popularity of email, Cowboy Bebop might sound completely different. Let's talk about this for just one moment here. The translation for Bebop so far, the way that people talk and sort of uh, make jokes and riddles, does it come off as a natural translation to you? I think so. And and this is kind of the delicate balance that you have to deal with where you don't want to like culturally whitewash a show, especially one like Cowboy Bebop, that while it has these Western influences, it's clearly an Asian show. I I think it does a really good job of keeping that identity while still uh, coming off naturally and engaging with Western audiences. I just imagine that nightmare scenario of someone doing the bell peppers and beef speech in the very first episode and just not understanding what's the point of the scene. But thankfully, Mark understood that, and he's been very successful ever since then. But that's going to have to do it for Bebop History. Steve, can you tell us when today's episode aired? Sure, Colin. It aired uh, November 14th, 1998 on Wow Wow, my favorite TV station. <laughs> September 9th, 2001 on Adult Swim. And uh, it aired never on TV Tokyo. We're going to talk about that as this goes on. Why didn't this air on TV Tokyo? Because this is the very first episode they've skipped since the first episode, Asteroid Blues. Anyway, this episode was directed by Yoshiyuki Takai, who's our very first returning director who also directed Asteroid Blues. And it was written by Sadayuki Murai, who will go on to write three more episodes. And today's episode is called Gateway Shuffle. This is obviously a reference to Blues Shuffle, where some random people on message boards think it's a reference to Techno Shuffle. What's a Techno Shuffle? Just sounds like Techno. That's That's it? Oh. That doesn't seem really in line with the rest of the show. No, it would not be. (laughs) Now, the Blues Shuffle is most commonly associated with 12-bar blues. Uh, It's really how blues music works. Even if If you've never studied music before, you know how beats work, because nearly every popular Western song ever written is four beats per measure. And popular music loves to use quarter notes. One, two, three, four, one, two, three, four. Count along to anything you're hearing on the radio, it's going to fit. Because blues shuffle works kind of differently. It's basically four, four, and using quarter notes, but each note has a double tap. Now, musicians can leave that rhythm and go on to do whole notes or half notes or eighth notes or 16 notes, but it's all built around the shuffle. Ta-ta, 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 ta-ta. 
and then create a more free-flowing improvisational style of playing music, which directly led to jazz, which directly led to rock and roll, and pretty much all popular American music. So this episode starts off with uh, a shot of Jupiter and its moon, Gamamede. And Gamamede is important to this episode. Uh, and it is, of course, named after the mythological young boy who was picked by the Greek god Zeus to become his cupbearer and uh, mm, lover. Ew. And uh, let's just say ancient Greece didn't have a legal age. Are you serious? Yeah, that's disgusting. Oh, my God. Anyways, uh, Zeus is a pedophile. <laughs> Also, this is the first episode not to show the gateway travel system in the opening establishing shots, uh, despite the fact that it'll become a critical point later on, and also despite the fact that that's it's literally in the name. I get this feeling that they're starting to trust the audience a little bit more about what this show is. Yeah, just the mechanics of how it works and how people get around and, and the way that the characters sort of interact with their environment and things like that. I know, don't hold me to this, but I think after a while they have episodes start off in other places. It's it's not always just space. I feel like they're just trying to tell every new audience member, hey, this is a sci-fi show. We're in outer space. We cut to the character that was introduced last week, Faye Valentine, who is seen stranded without gas in her red tail ship, surrounded by empty packets labeled chicken and rice, chocolate, sugar, and salt. Who eats a whole pack of salt? Or a whole packet of sugar, for that matter. I guess if you blend them together, it's kind of like kernel corn. Mm. <laughs> and it appears she's drinking some sort of orange fluid, possibly orange juice or orange orange soda, or maybe even Tang, which, of course, the astronauts drink. Mm -hmm. Or space urine. So, yeah, at this point, Faye sees a broken-down ship in the distance, and she thinks about investigating because, obviously, you know, she's stranded. Uh, so... It's safe to assume this is a popular travel area. Otherwise, being without fuel in space is a fucking terrifying concept. Seriously, that's the thing that, that stuck out to me in this episode is like, she's in the middle of nowhere, but she's not that worried about it. You know, she's like drinking soda yeah. and whatever. She just assumes that someone's going to pick her up eventually. This would be a nightmare scenario. I feel like in any other show. Yeah, I'd be horrified. There's there's literally like horror films based around this concept. So Because the universe is big, mm -hmm. you know, like it, and, it's, yeah. and it's, it's not like a street where it's forward and back, it is literally 360 degrees. You don't even know which way is up. Where are the chances you're going to bump into another ship? Anyway, it does cut to the title, which of course is Gateway Shuffle, and we hear this piece of music that I really, 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 really like. It's called Sax Quartet, and in terms of Cowboy Bebop music, it is incredibly underrated. Nobody covers it because, obviously, you would need multiple saxophones. And just like it implies, it is four saxophone players, but they're not accompanied by anything, even drums. So the entire piece is built from saxophones. It is Super cool, and it's one of my favorite Cowboy Bebop pieces. So yeah, at this point, we see Spike and Jet, and they're kind of hanging out in this restaurant, and uh, Spike is kind of like scrolling through the menu. There is, of course, a cool little typo here uh, where uh, it says seared lamb with hutter, which presumably should be butter. But overall, they actually spelled everything else right, which is impressive considering it mixes Italian interchangeably with English. So there's things like uh, vitello e limon, which is veal with lemon. What say you, vegetarian loser, Colin? I don't know. I don't understand why anyone eats veal. That is messed up. What, you never eaten a baby before? <laughs> well. Come on. Why do you think I became vegetarian? <laughs> <laughs> the whole point of this menu scene is it's sort of setting up the, the central thrust for our conflict in this episode. So Jed has explained to Spike the history of the Gamamede sea rat, which is a disgusting little creature eaten by the poor until it was rebranded as a delicacy. Hmm. Uh, hmm. Where have I heard that before? Well, Spike's disappointed that it's considered a high-class meal because, you know, he's going to be cool. Hipster Spike. He is such a hipster in this moment where he mm. goes, well, then I'm out if yeah. it's in. Spike, he wears like these old-fashioned clothes and he smokes cigarettes and he's got a crazy haircut. Is Spike a hipster? We have to ask these questions. Spike is definitely a hipster. Let's not kid ourselves. He's talking about Charlie Parker in 2071? Yeah, total hipster. Uh, but yeah, you know, you, you really haven't heard Charlie Parker until you listen to it on space vinyl. And then he like lights a cigarette and pulls a wisp of hair away from his face. <laughs> That's how Spike works. Anyway, so, you know, Gamamine Sea Rat is too high class. So he goes with the lobster miso stew or uh, lobster rice set. The irony here is, of course, that the Gamamine Sea Rat shares the exact same history as the lobster. I We really need to break this down because... How many people have you met that are like, oh, I just love lobster. Oh, it's such a delicacy. And people still buy into it to this day if they only knew. It's expensive. Why is it expensive? Well, uh, for a long time, it was used to literally feed prisoners in the Upper East Coast. So lobster was prison food yes. for a very long time. In Boston. 
Wisconsin and areas like that. Yeah. So in the 1800s, uh, canning became a thing. So people outside of the area were able to actually try lobster for the first time. And it immediately became popular. And the idea of fresh lobster then became in vogue because it's like, oh, I love it in cans, but have you had it fresh? Okay, so obviously, you know, when people are like, oh, I gotta have fresh lobster, then the value begins to skyrocket. So even though these are literally like bottom-feeding sea insects, they suddenly become super expensive, popular food item. And this has been over 150 years, and it's still that way to this day. Red Lobster, a food chain, exists based off of this premise. I don't know. I just think of like, what if one day like spam became? Yeah. <laughs> like, that's what this is. It's it's literal prison food. So it's just canned shit. Well, it's like the way with anything. It's like gourmet popcorn. What are you talking about? It's popcorn. Popcorn tastes good. You put butter and salt on it. What is gourmet popcorn? Sidebar, for me, this is something that really kind of, uh, it doesn't irk me, but it raises more questions for me. Nerd shit. Yes. The Ganymede Sea Rat is some sort of evolution of Earth creatures that were brought to space. Obviously, if humanity is going into outer space, they need to bring food with them. And I'm sure that they brought animals that would be able to procreate and, you know, have a food source. Unless, of course, they're aliens, which would really undercut the hard sci-fi appeal of the show. But here's a fun fact about the actual Gatomi. It does appear to have a salty ocean, with scientists assuming that it has more water on it than all of Earth combined once you get past the frozen ice surface. Anyway, we get back into the restaurant where Jet puts on a special kind of glasses, allowing him to discover their bounty, Morgan, post-plastic surgery. Let's stop for just one moment. If you only saw the first four episodes, you would assume that plastic surgery is going to be this repeating motif. Right. It is not. And also, it doesn't seem to work very well, considering that the bounty hunters that are after you can just put on a pair of glasses that go, oh, look, this is the guy that just had plastic surgery. Yeah, and I love that line where Jet just says, come on, come on, do that morphin' for my endorphin. Morgan, of course, is not a nice man. He's surrounded by all these pretty ladies, but he's yelling at the waitress. He wants his cigarette saute, which, of course, is risky because a few tables over, there are the Space Warriors. Which is the best name for a terrorist organization. Well, the Space Warriors are terrorists who are trying to protect the environment, which means now it is time for us to cover the real-world history of eco-terrorism. So terrorism is kind of a nebulous term. I think that's something we really want to start off by saying, uh, because if you break it down, uh, the separation between uh, an attacker who is part of a military and a terrorist is that they largely target civilians and that they are not part of a greater military action. And usually they attack civilians because they are trying to spread terror to scare the general population, to spread their ideology and change a government's behavior. Now, the modern environmental movement began in the early 1960s, you know, hippie shit. And like all political movements of the era, they were split into pure pacifism through protests and more aggressive prevention tactics. I mean, how would you describe an organization like perhaps uh, the Weather Underground? Sure. I mean, Weather Underground, uh, they did a lot of good things, I think. But also, when it comes down to it, they were domestic terrorists. Like, so, and, and that's the other thing with the ideology, too. You know, you can say that if you use guerrilla tactics or terrorist-like tactics, you're still a terrorist, uh, even if your intentions are pure and good. Anyway, the Space Warriors are headed up by Twinkle Maria Murdoch, who, according to Jet, took over a well-meaning organization and turned them into terrorists. So, yeah, the, the way that they kind of frame it is, you know, this is like space PETA. And then when this woman takes over, uh, she makes their tactics more and more aggressive and people are like, oh, I don't know. And they start quitting. So then what you're left with is just the most extreme faction within this group. Uh, and they start encouraging violent behavior and, and violent demonstrations. Here's my kind of issue with the concept, because they say they were a legitimate organization at first that became terrorists. But what exactly could they possibly protect beyond the Ganymede Sea Rat? They're in outer space. Stuff just collides all the time. Anyway, there is no real organization that is similar to the Space Warriors, despite what your crazy conservative uncle says on Facebook. But the closest would probably be the Earth Liberation Front, who have engaged in activities like tree spiking, uh, which is where they put a spike through a tree, which destroys chainsaws and usually hurts the person that's using the chainsaw too. And also the common tactic of most environmentalists, 
arson. Much like their related group, the Animal Liberation Front, who rescue animals from testing facilities and destroy slaughterhouses, both have a lot of arson in their back catalog. But neither has a recognizable leader, sort of like today's anonymous hacker group. As for the Sea Rat protests, that's not unlike Greenpeace, who have attempted to curtail whaling attempts all around the world. And I wonder how much of that might have influenced a Japanese writer to make terrorists look kind of bad? Because, of course, whaling was part of the culture of Japan for a while there. No, that's that's an interesting point, because when, when we talk about eco-terrorism and animal liberation organizations, a lot of times those are very Western concepts that don't necessarily jive with, uh, you know, the overall views of, of people in Japan. But speaking of Greenpeace and whaling, an early member of the group, Paul Watson, was considered so aggressive in his anti-whaling attempts that he was voted out of the organization in 1977, though he would continue his efforts over the next 40 years, even receiving his own reality show, Whale Wars, which most people have probably heard of. So lots of different influences influences, but there's no real-world parallel to the Space Warriors and Twinkle Marie Murdoch. Uh, I know some people, the obvious comparison is PETA, and we've certainly brought up PETA here. And PETA, even as me, a vegetarian, I will say they are stupid and weird, but eh, they're not really like the space terrorists. They're mostly a marketing campaign. Now, like we mentioned at the very beginning of the episode, I'm so glad that this aired on September 9th, 2001, because had it been scheduled for the next week, it probably wouldn't have aired. Obviously, 9-11 happened. And I know people are going to think I'm exaggerating, but Steve, back me up here. Just like everything about terrorism on television, stop. That was not a plot device. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, no, you couldn't do it, especially this close to 9-11. Like, the entire discourse around what terrorism is and what it represents, uh, it completely changed in the days and weeks following 9-11. So I don't know if Adult Swim would have been like, yeah, let's air the terrorism episode. There's actually another episode that they didn't air for over a year, and we'll get to that in the future. So yeah, our terrorist friends, they decide they're unhappy with Morgan's choice of entree, you know, the sea rat. Uh, So Murdoch has her men kill basically everyone in the restaurant. And then they drop a cute little hologram display with a happy dolphin and Caribbean chimes. And they thank everyone for their cooperation. And you kind of have this like overhead shot painting across the dead bodies. Uh, And this is kind of a fun juxtaposition that uh, the episode plays with because you have goofiness of the terrorist organization as it is, but they're still very like maniacal and evil and kind of scary. And then you have this silly Spectacle, and this is the equivalent of someone yelling "meat is murder" uh, and you know dumping paint on uh, I don't know some guy at a steakhouse. Like that's the way they see it. Except instead of just dumping paint on someone, they literally just killed a room full of people. And I do think it's worth pointing out that when they go to the space warriors at their table, everything they're eating is vegetarian because she's eating a she's eating a salad, and there seems to be something else that's like cucumbers or whatever so they are fully strictly vegetarian and like you were talking about with the music there it it's it's so chilling it's a bit like a murder at a Chuck E. cheese is what it kind of comes off as and also i think it emphasizes too and we'll see more of this throughout the episode these little moments this weird friction that exists because the actions that the terrorist organization is taking they're so serious but as characters they're also over the top and at times silly like there's actual like laugh out loud moments in this episode but what you're laughing at isn't funny in isolation and i think it's time to talk about it because this is the only only scene I can think of. Is this the reason it did not air on TV Tokyo? Probably. I mean, it's really difficult to say. I, I, I can't tell. I mean, there are just littered with dead bodies all over the floor, covered in blood. And yeah. it's, it's it goes from like, you know, happy restaurant scene to pitch black dead bodies all over the place. I have to imagine this is what got rid of it because there's nothing else in the episode that I would see so objectionable to TV Tokyo. So there's this part that happens next that I I struggled with and I'm hoping you can help clear it up a little bit for me. So there's there's a, a brief kind of like, you know, scuffle and an escape that's going on after this massacre and Spike is able to uh, go up to Murdoch, put a gun to her head, and essentially capture her. And she's got this 25 million Wulong bounty, which is at least three times higher than any bounty we've seen so far. Mm. And then her her little minions, her little warriors are forced to leave her behind. Like, oh, mother, I don't want to leave you. Can we talk about that for a second, how creepy it is that they call her mother? Yeah, it is kind of creepy. It's very Mike Pence. The part that I'm confused about, like everything makes sense. Mm-hmm. And maybe I don't understand how space bounty hunting works. So you can, you can clear this up. 
We hear police sirens. The police are on their way. Right. We are on the planet of Ganymede. The uh-huh. Ganymede government is the one who's put out this 25 million Wulong bounty. And even what they said last episode with Faye, when they said, that's the only place that'll cash out your bounty for Faye. Exactly. Yeah. So, we hear the police sirens. Spike has her captured. And then we immediately cut to them with her tied up on their spaceship. Why didn't they just turn her in? That doesn't make any sense. Okay, so it's not just me. There's not There's not an explanation here? The exact same thing when I was watching that because you hear the police and he even says you better get out of here before the police show up and so they leave her behind that is the driving force of the scene on why they leave it doesn't make any sense whatsoever but when we're back on the bebop spike views a slideshow of the space warriors given their uh, backstory and there's some signs written in english that are hilarious there's one that says sea rat is no good to eat we like pork yeah because you know kill the pigs then there's another that was written in german which i actually translated on google and it says the destruction of the environment is unfavorably high the seamouse okay <laughs> so maybe they only care about sea rats and there's really no purpose to this organization this is underwritten i wish they did there was like more to this yeah i mean the way that i interpreted it because i remember laughing at that english sign too <laughs> the way i saw it is it just undercuts how silly they are so there's this dissonance between you know, their violent actions and their convictions and what their real ideology is. So it's almost like they're, they're poking fun at them because it's just like, oh yeah, we eat pork, but don't kill the sea rat. It's like, wait, what? It's okay to kill that animal? There's so much wackiness to this group and clearly their leader is unhinged. So it's basically saying that, yeah, while, you know, maybe killing animals is morally wrong, you could make that argument. These aren't good people. It's it's a way to say, like, don't sympathize with the with the terrorists in this situation. So I'm thinking that these characters are possibly underwritten. I think you're taking a different turn here and saying that their limited scope of interest is actually a comedic purpose. Yeah. Yeah. Huh, I never considered that. Unfortunately for Spike and Jet, it appears their bounty has been called off by Ganymede because there's a guy in a business suit who called it off. Uh, who is this guy? I don't understand because he was seriously on the phone and he said, yes, Mr. President at one point, And then someone else calls him chief. I got no clue. And all we ever see of Gadamine is this like seaside spiral building where he is. But they mention there's 8 million people, but we don't really see any of the people. That's a lot of telling and not much showing. Anyway... We have to talk about it. It's discovered that the space warriors have created a brand new virus called monkey business. This rocks. Okay, we have very different opinions on this. I can <laughs> it's tell. so goofy. Okay, okay, okay. I'm going to get my piece out. Then Steve, please, you know, call me out wherever you're not going with me on here, all right? They have called off the bounty because of something called monkey business. And I want to start off by saying that this is a reasonable plan for environmentalists. If you want to stop humans from destroying nature and leave everything else intact, I mean, except for the nuclear generators that don't have any people running them, so they'll obviously explode, uh, and all the planes in the sky will crash, and all the cars and everything else, that's fine. You know, if you want people to just be monkeys, whatever. My issue is exactly how does this virus work? Because they mentioned that uh, chimpanzees and human beings, there's only a difference of 2% in their DNA. Okay, all right. So they have this virus that could change one person's DNA... In the course of like 20 minutes. Not only that, but they only have one scientist that worked on this virus. And it turns people into monkeys. First of all, yes, there is a 2% difference between chimpanzees and human beings, which is actually a really wide gap. Here's my issue with the 2% of the DNA. The problem is, what does that mean? Humans and chimps have around 20 to 30,000 genes. So that 2% is spread out really thin all over the entire body. And even then... It activates and informs how something is built. But that's just it. This starts in the embryonic state. So what exactly is going on with monkey business? Well, it looks like a dude is getting lobotomized. We'll talk about that later. And that could make sense because humans lose uh, 7,000 neurons every single day. But is he going to be developing a greater sense of smell like apes? Because that doesn't make any sense. You can't gain abilities. And are these people growing fangs? How is that working? And here's my real issue with it. This is magic. This is a magic virus. This is this is the very first X-Men movie where they're turning people into mutants. I am okay with this. If we're reading a comic book, you know, with Spider-Man, where people are being turned into dinosaurs from a laser gun, I'm okay with this. If we're watching a horror movie like The Fly, I am down for this. But inside the world of Bebop, 
This is irreversible. I don't know how you can you can fix this because at that point, why aren't you influencing new DNA strands to human beings? Why do they just look like regular human beings? Why aren't they able to like regrow limbs as opposed to using robotic limbs? I hate it. I hate it so much, Steve. My name's Colin and I take the the Space Cowboy show too seriously. It's goofy as shit. I love it. It's so silly. It's ridiculous. Uh, I, I love the way that Murdoch is just so twisted and completely out of her head. I love the way they animate her face. It's so detailed and gross and sinewy and weird. And of course, of course, she's going to come up with this ridiculous plot to turn people into monkeys. And it's totally in line with this criticism that the show has, this ongoing criticism of like, just the goofiness of eco-terrorism because you have these extreme eco-terrorists who aren't just like, hey, like let's decrease carbon emissions and yada, yada, yada. But these are people who are like, no, we got to burn it all to the ground and we're all going to live in the woods and that's it. The only way to save the animals is to turn you all into monkeys. Like it's a completely patently lunatic idiot idea and it's hilarious and it's great. So you're taking this episode as is funny. Yes. 100%. A dark comedy. It's very dark and hilarious. I will also admit you talked about her facial expressions. When they show the the apes in the the containers, Mm -hmm. that's some really good animation. Yeah. And her face as well. That's the best animation of the episode. Uh, Anyway, we do cut to the lab, which remind me a bit of 1995's Outbreak. I don't know if you remember that movie. Oh, yeah. Do you you see that sort of similarity? Yeah, I was thinking uh, Outbreak for sure. And also, there's a lot of films, uh, and this spanned from literally like the 1930s on through the 1970s, where it's just, you know... Uh, man toying with nature too much, apes gone wild type of movies. And this this was a very popular thing because it was easy to get a monkey suit for cheap. So you saw a lot of movies like this. Uh, it's got echoes of The Island of Dr. Moreau, things like that. So there's there's a lot of things that tie this to both, you know, horror and exploitation throughout the uh, mid to late 20th century, as well as like, you know, literary things. I think if we're looking for the scene that really hammers down how deranged these people are, and yet it's still kind of funny... It's the scene where they're talking to the chief and that one guy is playing with a plushy sea rat while they're threatening to kill 8 million people or lobotomize them. I was literally like like cracking up during that scene. It's really? so great. Which is just like, it's it's so funny because that's that's the whole thing is like, not only are they crazy and dangerous, but like ultimately it's very infantile. Also that scene that we were just talking about with them all standing around the monitor, I love that they could have just drawn them to look scary, but they don't. They draw them like regular people and they use the flickering light source, the lower light source that gives that natural spooky effect on the face. So after this, we we finally get back to Faye, who has made contact with a ship, but unfortunately for her, it's the Bebop. Womp womp. So Jet and Spike hand cover above her head. Uh, not the best visual. We've got the second episode and Faye's being handcuffed by Spike and Jet again, even though they don't seem to be fetishizing her in any way. But this just doesn't seem to be a practical way to handcuff anybody. No, they, they didn't They didn't handcuff Murdoch this way. No, they tied her up with rope. Yeah. So anyways, they start digging through her belongings and they discover the vial on monkey business that Faye discovered in the broken down ship. And so Spike, of course, goes to work trying to break it open because that's what you do. Oh, look, mysterious vial of... Who knows what? Let me just smash it. Spike is a character that is equal parts uh, very intelligent and quick-witted. And then there's scenes like this where he's just beating the crap out of that vial while while Murdoch is just looking at him and trying. This is some great animation. Trying not to show how scared she is of him breaking that open. Yeah. Until he finally takes out a gun and just shoots it open. Which is, I mean, that's great. That's how you should open any mysterious thing up. You just shoot it until it opens and you're good to go. All right. So Jet starts to gather some info from his former ISSP co-worker and contact, Bob. And uh, the blocking on Jet is great uh, because it solely focuses on Bob while Bob won't even look at Jet. Instead, he's just sort of like blankly staring at a porno mag off camera. You can actually see how Jet has his hands folded together and he's just staring so intently. And I just love that kind of the difference of their relationship. This is funny too, because, you know, normally you like, why is he looking at a porno mag instead of his computer? But he's clearly at work and that's just, it's hilarious. But this is the other part where it's like, I wonder, given what I know, I wonder if it wasn't the violence 
But this scene, this mm, scene mm. that kept it off of TV Tokyo. I mean, it's all possible, isn't it? Because mm-hmm. it seemed like they were cranking down on just content in general around that period. But this is also where we learn that they have no choice. The Bebop crew have to give up Murdoch back to the Space Warriors. And this is some of my favorite dialogue and voice acting in the episode. She's great. She's like practically like singing. Which one of us truly deserves punishment from heaven? Soon the hour of judgment will arrive. Yes. Very soon. And I also want to, I do want to mention that the uh, voice actor here is Mary Elizabeth McGillan, who is the director of ADR for Cowboy Bebop. And we'll talk about more about her in a future episode. Her performance is probably my favorite in the entire episode. Yeah, no, she is great. And she totally anchors this whole thing and sells it. And just the character is so over the top. I love her. She's this character. Murdoch is my favorite villain so far. Get out of I here. I love her. Oh, my God. Uh, we'll talk about that when we close up. But I, I do want to talk about her performance for a second because I just sort of realized she sounds a bit like a cooking show host. Right? She's She's got this like Julia Childs thing to yeah. her. And she looks like the mean lady from like Lady and the Tramp. And it's just like... And and the way that there's this almost like lyrical quality to her voice, it's so weird. Just want to say, just want to say, just one thing. If I could just say one thing, everybody. It's kind of weird that, you know, Jet and Spike don't have guns and neither do the Space Warriors. They're just like, oh, okay, we trust you. They're, these are terrorists, right? Yeah. Uh, I mean, wouldn't they just try and kill them anyway? I guess mom maybe said don't bring any guns, but we kind of needed that scene. I don't know. Uh, not to mention some very cheap looking animation where it's clear that a still of Murdoch is just floating towards the Space Warriors where she should be walking because gravity is still enabled. Okay, here's the scene that I've wanted to talk about since I rewatched this episode. Because in case you don't know, me and Steve, we sit down and we watch an episode separately, of course, and we're writing out what happens shot for shot. And this scene is perhaps the most confusing thing I have seen in some time. I call it the confusing decoy scene. The police are trailing a decoy ship, and the decoy ship releases a bunch of holograms like we saw earlier. One of them says, keep clean our space, something to no dirty cosmos. We want no dirty underwear. (laughs) Our life cosmos something something and keep clean. The decoy ship releases vessels of the infected humans because they're the yellow canisters, the ones that the monkeys were in, or at least they're similar looking vessels. They float until they crash into a net. Once they crash into a net, then the real ship takes off while the decoy ship explodes and kills the police. I don't even think this is nerdy shit. Like, just break this down from a directing standpoint. What the fuck is going on? I actually, I watched the third act of this episode three times. So did I! Like, from, from this scene through the end, which we'll get to where they're, like, entering into different dimensions and shit, I'm just like, why is this like this? And this is, like, some hardcore... This is the anime shit that I talk about when people are like, oh, do you like anime? And I'm like, well, I like some stuff, but it's just like it gets way too far up its own ass. And this is this is definitely one of those situations. Before we even get to that, though, let's talk about that decoy scene. I don't. How long did they have a decoy? Because the police were already following that ship. When did they leave? Were they inside those yellow vessels and then they climbed into another ship? I don't think so, because I think that's where the apes were. I really want someone to, like email us or tweet at us or just like break down this scene for me because I again I watched it over and over and I was just like I don't understand how this works. Why are they releasing the canisters? Why do we follow the canisters hitting the net? What does that mean? What is that point of that? And it's it's a long scene of us just following empty canisters or full canisters hitting a net and then another ship taking off. Was that something to give them a clue that they're supposed to leave? I don't know. I got no idea. And even then my bigger question is was this always the plan or only after Murdoch was captured? Yeah, and, and I was thinking about that too, and I'm guessing it was something that they hatched after Murdoch was captured, but then we're looking at how incompetent her underlings are and the idea that they could have somehow stitched together this elaborate plan. And also it's worth pointing out that Faye went to that ship, which was a spy for the uh, Space Warriors that was killed by them once he was discovered. He was a spy for the government and he was inside the Space Warriors and the Space Warriors killed him. They blew up his ship. And she says, we're going to stick to the plan, but then she gets kidnapped. I don't know what's going on at this point, but the explosion looks really good, which has like the the the, the kind of expanding oranges and reds, and then the the like hot white right in the middle. 
that just shows how powerful this explosion is. Even though that would not exist in space, it's a really cool effect. It looks cool, yeah. Who gives a shit? Looks amazing. But then we get to my favorite moment in the entire episode. Hell yeah. Steve, you better take this. How motherfucking cute is Ayn handcuffed and slightly off model? He looks like a a little fuzzy sausage. He does. I don't know what he's barking for. If he's if it's angry barks or if just be cute as hell, that's why. Okay, lucky for the Bebop crew, the bounty is put back on and Spike and Faye head into hyperspace. I've been teasing this for a while now. Let's explain the gateway travel system. Okay, these are also known as astral gates, which somehow access hyperspace, almost like a pocket dimension where real-time movement is accelerated to be faster than the speed of light, greatly reducing travel time. However, this requires gates to be in place. So let's say we're at Mars and we want to go to Pluto. We need a gate at Mars, and we need a gate at Pluto. Think of it like a freeway of sorts. Uh, So hyperspace is win-win all around, because you're essentially phasing through a layer of reality. But if the gate were to shut off, and then you turn it back on, you're screwed, because you'd be trapped inside of it, because like I said, it's a pocket dimension. When they turn it back on, it's an entirely different dimension. They can't access that dimension again. They don't have that technology. But because hyperspace is not a static place, it only exists temporarily in the first place but the gates are accessing hyperspace and holding it and shaping it for travel. Now, I'm not great at this kind of stuff, but in terms of analogies, it's like building a sandcastle with those plastic cups, and then you knock it down, and then you try and rebuild the sandcastle. You might be able to make it look identical, but it's not the exact strains of sand. So basically, instead of having ships that just have warp speed and can travel as fast as possible, this is a substitution. What do you think, Steve? Good or too cartoony? I like it. It works. I mean, it kind of separates it from other sci-fi shows or movies. You know, it's not just like Star Trek or Star Wars or anything else like that. So it's kind of interesting. Um, It's fun. And there's some depth to it. It's kind of cool. And it also allows for some interesting story wrinkles, which make the ending of this episode a little bit messy, but also it it all kind of fits within the universe. So kudos to them. This right here is the scene that really salvages the episode for me. I mean, I'm not getting a whole lot of character here, and I'm not really getting a whole lot of development. But at the very least, I get an amazing action sequence when Spike heads into hyperspace to confront the space warriors and prevent them from firing the monkey missile that will destroy Ganymede. I, did I just say that out loud? What does yeah, that mean? Yeah, monkey missile. From the terrorists who wear, like, sea rat hats. <laughs> yeah. Also, the song that's playing here is called Too Good, Too Bad. It is one of my favorites. I recently saw someone on YouTube that was covering the drum part of it, which is just excellent. Uh, plays a bit like a drum line. Just that rat-a-ta-ta-ta-ta-ta-ta-ta-ta-ta-ta-ta-ta-ta-ta-ta-ta-ta-ta-ta-ta-ta-ta-ta-ta-ta-ta-ta-ta-ta-ta-ta-ta
All right, so the way that this wraps up is the government decides to close the gate altogether. So Faye and Spike narrowly kind of fit through the shrinking astral gate portal thing. And then Faye freaks out because she sees all these missiles that are trapped in hyperspace sort of passing through her. This is bad news for the space warriors, made even worse when it's discovered that Spike slipped the vial of monkey business back into Twinkle's pocket. And so now the whole crew will die in (laughs) hyperspace and their intelligence is slowly disintegrated. And this is dark as shit. Seriously. (laughs) And there's also the scientists on board, which we are led to believe is innocent and being held against his will to do this shit. And now he's trapped with them. So that is the most horrifying scene in all of Bebop. I know it sounds like I'm exaggerating, but this yeah. is that's some really out there shit. Also, there's there's some anime splain going on too, because when Faye sees all the missiles going by her and she's like, uh, anime! And then Jet's like, no, let me explain this very complex scientific thing so that everyone in the audience knows exactly what's happening. And you're like, okay, yeah. Also, the fact that Jet references that you learned that in school, which kind of shows how long these have existed. Yeah, which and that's kind of interesting too. So it does a little bit of world building, but it's just like it's it's such an over-the-top concept and the fact that they have to like kind of explain this all and it's it's just this big thing i do want to point out that the music ends before they escape through that closing wormhole and that really adds tension for that final five seconds and they get through Mm -hmm. it's super cool yeah it's great it's fantastic all right so you know then after this we're we're back on the bebop and uh (laughs) this is where spike and jet suddenly realize that uh faye intends on staying on the ship and jet doesn't really care and spike of course gets annoyed because we've learned that (laughs) Spike doesn't really like animals or women very much. No, he doesn't like a lot of things. Or a lot of things, for that matter. Basically anything that can get in his way or cause, like, chaos in his life, he's just like, no. So anyways... He's annoyed and he marches into the shower to tell her only to be shot at as we close on our sea rat plushie and uh, we cut to see a space cowboy. Once again, kind of an abrupt ending. Yeah. The the whole the whole third act feels very rushed. Like from the time that we go from like decoy ship craziness to the hyperspace chase to like, by the way, phase a crew member and then this like boom, quick ending. Uh, this is another one where it ended, I'm like, wait, there's not, like, the other episode started up automatically on Hulu, and I was just like, what, what, what? <laughs> yeah, that's kind of my issue, is that it, it closes on the image of the sea rat, which is a plushie, and I guess that's kind of funny? I don't know, I, I like the cute little plushie. It is a very cute little plushie. Before we get on to how we felt about the episode, this is going to be the moment that establishes Faye is staying on for the rest of the series. Well, do you think that does a good job of it? No, it's very abrupt. I mean, we kind of knew anyways, because don't they, they show her in the opening yeah. like credits, so you're like, okay... This is a thing. But the way they just sort of like, well, I guess she's on the ship now and is going to stay. It's like, why? What's her motivation to do that? Why wouldn't they just dump her ass on Gamamine? Like, I guess it's because Jet doesn't care. And it, technically it's Jet's ship and he doesn't have an opinion. But like, that's cute and all, but it feels way too anime. And I know anime fans are going to get really defensive about that. But I think they can also agree that in the early episodes of any series, they always have to find a rationale why a, a group of people are gathering together. This is very common. If you've played JRPGs like Final Fantasy, it, it works like that. Uh, one of the shows who I was talking about earlier, Tenchi Muyo, one of my absolute favorites, they have a series and then they have a reboot of a series and they have another reboot of the series. Two of those is all about the people gathering together and just finding excuses to live together. And it's charming in a show like that. For Bebop, which sort of prides itself on its characters and their emotions, it's just kind of like, well, I guess I'm living here now. I'm just glad that Faye is on there and they don't have to find a reason to put her in the show anymore and she can just be herself. Because let me tell you, every episode after this one, Faye is far more interesting. I promise. Also, I do want to say, before we close out on that, that Spike did not smoke a single cigarette the entire episode, which means the Spike cigarette counter is only up to four. Now, Steve, Dr. Steve, can you please report on the inometer? Well, Colin, it's important to note that it's not about how much time Ein spends on the screen. It's about the quality of that time, okay? I want you to remember that. And if you recall in this episode, Ein was handcuffed and barking and looked like an adorable fuzzy sausage. So, of course, on the inometer, we have to rate him a SEN! I'm sorry, what is that exactly? That's a 10 in German. A 10, another perfect 10 for Ein. Good boy. What a day. But Steve, can you tell me, I know you've been digging in the depths of Funimation and Internet Movie Database, 
tell me what the fans thought of this episode. So over on Funimation, they gave it four stars, which matches the other highest rated episode, Asteroid Blues, which is kind of ridiculous. Same director. And over on IMDb, which is a cesspool of morons, uh, 6.8, the lowest rated episode so far. And... I say that not because I necessarily disagree with the rating, but just because IMDb ratings are done by a cesspool of morons. And we do want to say that these are active ratings. So if you go there and it's a 7.0 and you're like, they lied to me. Um, Excuse me, Wulong Club. I'm tweeting at you today to let you know that it's actually a 7.1. People are voting all the time on this. But Steve, what say you? Gateway Shuffle, what'd you think? It's fun. It's it's a fun little one-off. Uh, it's a mess. The third act is abhorrent, but I love the first act and I love the villain, so it's still fun. It's a, it's a quick watch. I just wish that it wasn't so messy. It feels very sloppy. I don't know. I, I think handling Faye better in this episode would have helped a lot because it feels like she sort of just plopped in and this is an excuse to just get her on the ship moving forward. And that storyline is so threadbare and just barely existent at all. And it feels very forced. And that's kind of annoying. Uh, and it, it undercuts a lot of the good, goofy stuff that's going on in this episode. Can you imagine if that casino owner last week, when she blew him up, because of course he put out the bounty on her, that meant the bounty went away, and they could have had this ending on that episode. And it would have been not, fine. <laughs> wouldn't have had to bother with this. Exactly. There's no reason for this. I've not been keeping this a secret. I feel that this episode is a major step down from the first two. I will say I like this one better than last week. Last week was slow. It was boring. It didn't make a whole lot of sense. And the animation on the faces was really bad. This week, the animation's a lot better. Kind of like what you're talking about with Twinkle's uh, facial expressions. <laughs> right when she sees the monkey business shattering, she's got her eye flickering and she's oh, yeah. completely lost her mind. But to me, Bebop is at its best when it focuses on characters. And it focuses on emotional states rather than events or even ideas. It's very much just rooted in how people feel. And I don't think there's a lot of feeling in this episode. The good news is, for me personally, because I've seen the rest of the series multiple times, is that we're done with all of these weird magic things and these sort of action-adventure episodes. And we're starting to get towards where things are going to get a little bit more emotionally complex rather than narratively complex, which I prefer so much more. But we're done with all the magic casino chips and weird viruses. Every episode beyond this is going to be so much better than these two. These are the absolute worst for me. Would you call this episode total monkey business? Stop it. Don't. No. (laughs) (laughs) And that about wraps things up. So I guess, you know, if you enjoyed this show... Do us a big favor. Head over to iTunes. Check out Optimism Vaccine. If you look in the description of this episode, there's actually a link right to our iTunes page. You can click on that. Give us a five-star review and give us a written review. Why on earth would you do that, you say? Well, the answer is simple. The more reviews we get, the more positive reviews we get, the more visible we are, the more visible we are, the more people can listen, the more people that listen, the more content that we can put out for you. It makes everybody happy. Everything is great. Who knows? If this show is successful, maybe Colin will subject me to more anime and then my uh, I'll have a brain aneurysm. <laughs> but on that note, uh, yeah, if, if you want to check out more of our work, go to OptimismVaccine.com. There's more podcasts. There's all kinds of articles, all kinds of cool pop culture related things. Even some stuff on anime. Uh, some of our other writers are, are big anime nerds too, so the stuff's out there. If you want to tweet at us, at Optimism Vaccine is the place to do that. You can also tweet at Wulong Club, or you can email us at animebroadcastcompany at gmail.com. And if you want to tweet directly at me, uh, I'm on Twitter at Steve Cuff. That's at Steve C U F F. Colin, where can the good people of the internet find you? You can find me on Twitter at Dr. Crychop. That's at DR Karate Chop. And you can also see my video game stuff if you go to youtube.com slash C slash video games are dumb. Just Google it. You'll find me. So that's it for this week. See you, Space Cowboy. It's been fun, but I think that's it for Wulong Club. What? Well, like you said, you didn't enjoy the past couple episodes. Yeah, but... And it's like I always say, nothing ever improves. But you should really watch the next... Next episode, Ballad of Fallen Angels. Are you serious?